Hi everyone, thanks for listening in to the very first Movement Science Podcast. I'm the host Ricky Singh and joining us today is Professor Stuart McGill from the University of Waterloo. Professor McGill is a world-renowned leader in spine biomechanics. He is the author of Low Back Disorders and recently just released the fifth edition of Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. His research has focused on understanding how the low back functions, mechanisms of injury, and, and investigating ways in which individuals can reduce the risk of injury through optimal rehabilitation and ergonomics. Welcome, Dr. McGill. Hi, Ricky. How you doing? Uh, pretty well. Awesome. Yeah, fine sunny afternoon here in Waterloo. Well, Dr. Miguel, we'll uh, jump right in. Sir Isaac Newton was once quoted for saying, Five seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Who is that person or people to you that has influenced you the most? <laughs> well, there certainly wasn't a person that influenced me the most, but uh, there, there have been many people uh, along the way. Um, when I started my uh, scientific career, I would have to say my PhD supervisor, Bob Norman, and, and other professors around here at the time, uh, uh, Dave Winter, was uh, a really uh, iconic figure in the world of science. And uh, I hope I was able to pick up a few of his uh, uh, approaches. Uh, and then colleagues that I met along the way, uh, uh, Professors uh, Maris at Ohio State has, has been a terrific uh, colleague and, and mentor. Mm. Uh, Don Chaffin was another one at uh, University of Michigan who uh, uh, taught me a lot. Um, but uh, I'd say about 20 years ago, there were a few events that, that really changed my life. Uh, I'd, I'd been a scientist for about 10 years and was getting asked to speak at various medical meetings. And then uh, docs in the audience would ask, could you see a patient with us? Because what you just showed us um, is a different way of thinking. And um, we think it would help this particular case that's puzzling us. And I'd say, well, no, I'm not a clinician. Um, um, I can't help you. And they would talk me into it and uh, hold my hand a little bit and we'd start to see patients together. And then I began to realize that uh, the way we approached uh, diagnosis was was somewhat unique and it really helped them. And, and uh, we were able to pick up things that they had missed. And uh, also in terms of the various treatments and interventions uh, we would be much more hypothesis-driven and going for the mechanism of pain or the mechanism of injury rather than their thought was usually pain control through treatment. Right. So it was a great synergy, and that changed my life into becoming this uh, quasi-clinician that I guess I've uh, turned into. But uh, that gave me some confidence, and uh, at various medical meetings, I'd meet people like uh, Vladimir Yonda, who I'm sure you've, you've heard in your years of training. And uh, uh, from him, I learned the eye. He could walk, watch people uh, walk into a lecture theater, and he would pick out the ones that he wanted to bring down for demonstration, and we'd talk afterwards. Well, well, how did you know that that was the person with the deficient ACL or a uh, um, maybe a, an L5 uh, pathology or nerve trap? And, and, and it really was so poignant to, to listen to him describe how well it was all in their movement patterns. All you had to do was observe them. And Shirley Sarman was another one. Uh, her first uh, student ever was uh, Dick Earhart, mm -hmm. and Dick passed away a couple of years ago, but he 
took me under his wing at uh, University of Pittsburgh and uh, taught me a lot about uh, clinical assessment. Um, then there's the great coaches who I've, I've learned so much from, people like Pavel Satsulin, the, the Russian kettlebell master. Uh, these are all great friends, by the way, so we have wonderful times uh, socially, mm-hmm. but also uh, they've, they've taught me uh, so much. Uh, Dan John, who's coming to Guelph next month, and we're uh, going to get together. Uh, he's putting on a, a clinic there. Uh, and finally, um, the patients and the athletes themselves. Uh, I, I don't see local people. They all fly in, and uh, it means they're very committed when they, when they go to that length to uh, seek uh, uh, some relief or solution to their problem. Uh, so I've, I've seen some, some great athletes over the years, and everyone has taught me something. So it's all part of my education and uh, uh, producing this aberration that sits before you today. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so just diving a bit deeper into just some hot topics, uh, the term functional or functional training has been thrown around a lot lately. How would you define functional training? Well, uh, that's a wonderful question to start um, because the answer, uh, it really depends on the person, but to, to, to make the answer generic, I would say this. I would start by assessing the current capabilities of an individual. Then I would assess what the demands are that you want them to do. So what are you training them to do, and where do they currently sit right now? Functional training will train the difference. So it's very context and very person-specific. So functional training to get someone back to uh, world record form in Olympic lifting is very different than the functional training to get a postman back to uh, work, for example. Yeah, so their, their training would look completely different, obviously. Right, but you need those two critical pieces of information. Where are they currently now, and what have you done your demands analysis sufficiently to know exactly what it is? I can give you a really good example of that. Um, you take an MMA uh, athlete, for example, a mixed martial artist. Um, watch their past two or three fights and catalog them in terms of the demand. How long do they spend on their back in isometric control? Very heavy isometric contraction. How many explosive bursts do they do, they do to get off their back and, and to an upright standing? How long do they stand in upright postures, hold a person against a cage, etc., etc.? Now you know what their demands are and now you know what you need to build them to be able to do. So there would be an example of a functional training, very specific uh, in, in context and to the person. Right. So I see function as something that is, is relative to the individual, just like you discussed. In the world of rehabilitation and corrective exercises, have you come across anything that you would define in absolute terms? So in other words, uh, no matter who you are, if you do X or you fail to do Y, then the outcome can be predicted. Yeah, well, here we go again with that it depends answer, and it truly does in this case. Um, You can take any world-class athlete, and if they are the best in the world, it means by definition they're not normal. They're they're mutants in one form or another. So uh, 
uh, what they might be able to get away with in terms of their training shouldn't be copied by us mere mortals because it will break us. Right. So I guess the answer to the question is there are wise um, concepts and principles and there are unwise ones. So I, I, maybe that answers your, your question, you know, avoid injury mechanisms is probably a wise one and yet when you're tickling the dragon's tail and taking someone through to world-class performance, um, you will be brinking on injury mechanisms. So that's when the art and science of it all takes over. Right. And you know enough about that person's history that you know when to taper a bit, uh, what the proper intervals should be, uh, and that kind of thing. Right. So the, the importance of assessing breathing or breathing diaphragmatically is something a lot of healthcare professionals feel must first be addressed before progressing through any low back rehabilitation program. Where do you feel the assessment of breathing fits into our current understanding of rehabilitation for the injured spine? Well, uh, I know there's a lot of scuttlebutt at different meetings that I go to about teaching people to breathe and my attitude and, and um, uh, after having measured uh, a lot of people, I would say it's not the first order of business. Um, that, that really isn't the first thing that people should attack to get rid of back pain. It may be part of the picture. Um, but let me give you some examples now. Um, for example, uh, if someone is just uh, doing basic floor exercise for, for back pain, free breathe. That's all I, I, don't hold your breath, just, just free breathe. But if I really want to uh, challenge the mechanics of breathing and get them to breathe a bit more athletically, um, I think you've seen me do this in seminars in the past where we would put someone into a side bridge posture, just an isometric side bridge on the floor, but get them to breathe heavily. Now that takes out a lot of the uh, muscular components of breathing because the abdominal wall, the intercostals, have to be isometrically contracted in order to hold the side bridge. Now you have to use the diaphragm because it's all you have left. So it's, a, it's an exercise of subtraction. Now you start to create a very athletic diaphragm. And uh, a lot of the breathing muscles, when you take the isometric challenge away, start to do their thing. So I don't start with these very low levels of teaching uh, belly breathing and that kind of thing. I put them into a challenge and really develop the athletic diaphragm and then go from there. But uh, um, we just published a paper on uh, the exercise that we call the Levitt and uh, it really was created by Carol Levitt who was uh, Yonda's uh, mentor in Prague where um, the uh, patient will lay on their back on the floor in a crook lying position. They teeter on the sacrum back and forth to create a neutral spine. Now, I've seen some people who I don't think know what they're doing and they ask the patient to flatten their back to the floor, right. which is just, uh, you know, you were mentioning earlier about these different thresholds. It just takes all the motor control out. But the person exhales then, so they have a mild contraction in the abdominals already because of the crook lying. Uh, posture, and then they breathe out through pursed lips, uh, pretending they're breathing through a straw very forcefully. But they go to the end of normal tide and then get the entire 
uh, every ounce of breath out of out of their body, and that that creates uh, two very specific things. Uh, it it really challenges breathing mechanics, but it also does so in a way that pulls the rib cage down. So I'm sure at, in 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 a strength situation, you see some people when they get strong, their strategy is to lift the rib cage and they puff up their chest and flare their lats and that kind of thing, which uh, is actually uh, quite weakening and uh, it's taking their their spine out of neutral stress and actually putting it into extensor stress so when we see those kinds of things happening particularly in someone like a power lifter or performing power cleans uh, we might try that as a corrective exercise to pull the rib cage down into what we would call okinawan strength mm -hmm. so if you know the okinawan horse stance from okinawan karate that's their base of strength and uh, it very much is about achieving that posture and then setting up, a, a, say, a proper deadlift form or something like that. Um, and then there are times when the, you should not breathe at all, say, uh, for, for a deadlift or for beginning a sprint, for example. Many world-class sprinters won't, won't breathe at all for the first uh, 60 meters, and then they just sip the air, you know, and that's it. Um, and, and certainly with Olympic lifting. Uh, you never want to uh, breathe. Uh, you, basically, your spine would collapse right. uh, on losing that. But, uh, you know, it, it just uh, I'll, I'll tell you this last uh, example, which uh, I find very amusing. The uh, international tennis authorities, I don't know if you've heard, but they've just limited the um, decibels of the grunt when 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 people are serving, you know, the <coughs> when, when they're uh, serving the ball. It's actually much more uh, loud than that. And uh, I don't think they know what they're doing because it's the grunt that uh, creates a little bit more stiffness in the core. When you first begin expiration, <coughs> that, that beginning is called active expiration and it charges the uh, oblique muscles and the intercostals with a little bit of neural overdrive, which stiffens them even more. That locks down the core, so when the shoulder muscles fire to create uh, miles per hour on the serve, um, the more you can lock down the core, the more the muscle action is directed distally to the shoulder joint. So you actually get faster racket velocity through the grunt. And uh, why they would want to compromise uh, skill and miles per hour on a ball in a tennis match is beyond me, but again, it's these politically correct um, administrators who don't understand science. But uh, right. anyway, that's all part and parcel with breathing. So there's quite a long diatribe to answer your question. It depends. Right. There's all sorts of strategies of breathing depending on what the... Uh, uh, and we haven't even talked about pain control, right. um, because sometimes, as you know, a... Uh, um, a breath-holding strategy to get out of a chair, for example, is what can keep a patient pain-free. Mm -hmm. um, at the next person, it might not. It all depends on the uh, on the individual. Yep. So there's definitely something to be said about optimizing an individual's breathing, yeah. whether it's taking someone who's a chest breather and making them more um, more of a belly breather. Yeah. There's something to be said about that. Yeah, we published a study a couple of years ago on patients with COPD. 
So the people who've lost their lung uh, elasticity right. and uh, how they have to breathe with, uh, we thought they would be breathing more with their belly and the intercostals, but in fact they did not. They jacked up their rib cage with every breath by using their back extensors. So they were using their back to, uh, to breathe. Right. But uh, they had to. That's all they had left. And breathing through pursed lips, as you know, yeah. would be uh, valuable for that uh, population. If someone actually cannot perform a bodyweight movement, such as a squat, without the ability to perform a full breath at the end of the movement, or the, the bottom of the squat for this example, is it reasonable to suggest that adding a load would cause more harm than good to that individual? Oh, here we go. You know what the answer is. It depends, Ricky. <laughs> so, you know, if pain isn't involved, I, I'd agree with you. Sure. Uh, I, no issue. But people come to see me because they have back pain. And uh, uh, I, I might have, it, it, again, it all depends. Whatever I needed to create the mechanics to eliminate their pain is what I'm going to do. If it involves breath holding and... and uh, uh, so be it. Mm -hmm. But if you have a perfectly normal person who can't breathe at the bottom of a squat, you've got bigger issues. So right. I, again, I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah. Uh, uh, no issue at all. So in, in terms of the deep squat, what, uh, as it, what, what would you deem as a, an ideal candidate for someone to be performing a deep squat? Well, are we talking about an athletic situation or just uh, daily training or, or what? Yeah, let's talk about the athletic situation. Well, um, not everybody can a deep squat with a load on their back or uh, some kind of a resistance. And the fact of the matter is we all have different hip architecture. Right. And uh, you look at different, there are some groups in the world who have a very high rate of uh, uh, anterior femoral impingement. And the reason is they have very deep hip sockets. Right. So do you really want them to be uh, deep squatting? And, and my answer there would be probably not. So what we would do there is uh, take uh, them through a squat and watch where the pelvis breaks away from the fifth lumbar. So the, the lumbosacral junction, is, some people call it the butt wink, which right. is a popular term on the internet right now. And I wouldn't take them any lower. If, if, if we're going, and then the, there's no one who said, thou shalt not make the NFL as an offensive tackle if you can't squat with your bottom to the ground. Yep. Um, if you're going to squat with load, then uh, pull off blocks, but have good form. So never compromise form if you're going to put someone under load, and that means uh, losing the, the, uh, the, the natural curve uh, in the low back. So uh, there's just an example. But um, I would then certainly follow up as to why they're not able to squat deeply, and it may simply be hip anatomy. Um, but if it's another reason, then uh, I'd work on that. And, you know, I see all this, oh, it's ankle mobility. Well, um, y you know, it, it, it may be uh, ankle mobility um, uh, or it may be uh, something entirely different. How would you differentiate the terms movement capacity apart from movement competency? <laughs> well, I don't differentiate them really in that, uh, I'm not avoiding the question at all, but it's a continuum. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, for sure. So uh, movement competency generally is the ability to, to move well, which to me means free of injury mechanisms. 
So uh, now injury mechanisms are speed and load dependent. So do you see how right away we have to morph into more of a competency kind of uh, end of the spectrum to answer that? Um, but uh, they have to be free of injury mechanisms. Um, they should be moving efficiently. So no jerkiness to their movement, no out-of-plane joints. They're steering the force vectors through their body linkage very efficiently and close to joint centers and those kinds of things. Um, and then develop appropriate stiffness and mobility. Um, not too, uh, there's this idea that everybody should reach a certain level of mobility. Uh, I, I wouldn't go for that uh, at all. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, Oscar Pistorius, for example, uh, who people know uh, as a very fast amputee sprinter. Well, he doesn't have ankle joints. They're made out of carbon fiber. And an engineer tuned the stiffness, not the mobility, the stiffness. And that's how he runs so fast, with very efficient storage and recovery of elastic energy. So be careful what you want. Do you really want everybody to have the ankle mobility so they can deep squat, or do you want them to run fast? Right. Do you see that it, it, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul? So be careful what you want in just your measurement of movement competency through the deep squat, because their capacity, it might mean something entirely different once you, you've really understood and analyzed what it is they need to do to either compete well or, or, or move without pain or whatever their particular criterion is. So, so it's more relative to the individual. Yeah, very <laughs> and much so. And their loads that they're being placed on. Yeah, them. very much so. And, and, you know, another thought comes to mind in answering that question, and, and you know, you, you can consider what that might mean to a great MMA fighter, for example, and I, I think of one in particular who does gymnastics and tumbling exercises to make themselves a little bit dizzy so that they now have the capacity and the competency that when they're in the octagon or in the ring and uh, they, they take one on the chin and they get rattled a little bit, slightly concussed, they know what it feels like to uh, fight in that dizzy state. So they enhance their movement competency and their capacity <laughs> with that kind of uh, uh, very proprioceptive, disruptive uh, kinesthetic training. So, do, do you see again? It's it's a continuum to me, and uh, the answer is uh, it, it it depends <laughs> once again. All right. So, using the the squat as an example, okay, I'm going back to that. What would be your movement prerequisites for someone to be able to perform a loaded squat? So, to give some context, um, some coaches would argue that if an athlete cannot demonstrate an active straight leg raise of maybe above 70 degrees bilaterally, then they, wouldn't, they would not be allowed to squat until that is corrected. Well, again, I, I would never do that to anybody. I, I would look, if the goal is to squat load, I'd watch them squat. And uh, if they have good mechanics, um, but they just aren't reaching, say, the bar on the ground, I'd put the bar up on blocks and uh, start them squatting. Um, but I'd certainly follow up the reason why they can't squat. And as I said, if it was an anatomical uh, reason in their hips, for example, nothing that you are going to be able to do uh, about it, mm -hmm. go ahead. Squat them to the level that they have good movement competency 
with, free of injury mechanisms, they're moving efficiently. Um, and then uh, who said everybody has to deep squat anybody? You can do kettlebell swings, you can do all kinds uh, of, uh, you know, there are some athletes, and, and I've, I've worked with them, that they're, they're very successful in the National Football League, but they can't do squats. Their back just can't handle it, so they're pushing heavy sleds. Does it, does it, does it really impact negatively on their paycheck from the NFL? Not one little bit. <laughs> Spending more time on a sled for a lot of them is a good thing. Right. So there you go. It's, uh, I don't know, I, I guess people have these attitudes, uh, maybe they don't have very many tools in their clinical toolbox, and they, they create these rules, which whenever you have a rule, what the rule means is you will be good with the person who fits the rule, yep. and you will fail with the person who doesn't fit the rule. Well, you and I want to be as best we can in helping everybody, yep. not just someone who will fit a rule. So training for sport and playing in sport are two different environments for obvious reasons. In a gym, a coach can control for several variables, whereas in a game, there are an infinite number of variables which coaches try to control for. With this in mind, there are individuals in the field who advocate that training in multiple positions outside of what would be deemed neutral is an ideal way to protect against injury. So obviously given that enough time is allowed for tissues to adapt and accept the load. So in the non-painful clientele, do you think these types of proactive measures are useful for injury reduction measures? <laughs> well, I, I, you're going to hate me, but the answer <laughs> is it depends. It truly does. But recall now, and the readers need to, or your listeners need to, to be reminded of this, people come to me because primarily they have a history of, of back troubles. So I don't really have that pristine, uh, non-painful person. Mm -hmm. So I, I but, but if, if they have a history of pain, um, for sure. I'm going to quote Shirley Sarman on this one. It's better to have tighter joints than looser joints if, if you're going to err on, on, on the side of uh, what, what is safe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've, I've had a number of uh, jiu-jitsu um, players uh, uh, who, who, who compete at very high levels of, of MMA. And uh, in their training, they've been taught to get out of bed every morning and put their palms uh, flat on the floor in a stooped-over position right. to really keep that flexion going in their back. And they say, well, I need that to compete in jiu-jitsu, so we better train it. And I say, yeah, how hard are you training now? <laughs> and the point is they're so disabled with pain that they're unable to train. Yep. So I'll say, forget about that. Let's avoid the injury mechanisms and you will restore your capacity to train once again. Some listen to me and some don't. Actually, the ones who come, I charge them enough so they listen to me. <laughs> There's a, a lesson for you, Ricky. <laughs> charge more and they'll listen. But in any case, um, uh, we avoid the injury mechanism and I say, well, look, uh, it will get them out of pain after a little while because we've avoided the injury mechanism, which is taking their spine well outside their, their normal range. And uh, now they're starting to train again, but as soon as they go back to flexion, they flare up. So we make a deal, and we say this. Keep your out-of-position flexion training for the octagon. And now at least you can start developing a lot of capacity uh, uh, in the gym by avoiding the injury mechanism, and you can train and train hard get all your athleticism back. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you you might make it through that match without any back pain hopefully you do yeah. but you'll never get there if you keep trying to train what you think you you, you you need. I'll give you another example. We had an Olympic discus thrower. Came in, did really well. There's a, there's a very asymmetric athlete. But he did very well on movement screening and, and no pain, none. But I, I said, but you're coming to see me for pain. And, and I, he said, yeah. And then we did all kinds of loaded provocation tests. He was picking up bars and, and all kinds of things still no pain and I, I was getting a bit frustrated and I said to him what do you need to do to show me your pain mm -hmm. and he he winds it puts his arm out like he's throwing a discus and you know how a discus winds up they take their their throwing arm and they they twist around and 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 put the disc behind them yep. he did that and he says this hurts my back <laughs> and then I just said well how many times do you throw a discus a day and he says oh about a hundred and I said there is your mechanism that's your deal with the devil as an athlete you are wearing out the very athleticism you need to compete. So here's what we're going to do. You're now going to train to enhance the athleticism that you need from our demands analysis, but you're not going to throw the discus. You're only going to throw the discus to get your timing down, to tune the athleticism. We call it expressing athleticism. To You're only going to train the discus throw to remind your body how to express your athleticism and throw a world record. But you can't train it because you will flare up. You've worn it out now. So you remove the load. So, no, we remove the discus throw. So every second day they throw two or three times, and they better be good. So they're, they're fresh. They throw t three times, get the training down, and then we train everything else around it, never touching the event again. So this will be uh, very controversial and upsetting for some of your, your listeners, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, truth be known, that's exactly how we do it and how we restore training capacity to uh, painful uh, athletes who are, are, uh, have, have special athleticisms. But darn it, that's their pain mechanism. Now, if you have somebody who is flexion intolerant, and depending on the progressions you take, can you actually take that individual and make them flexion intolerant again? Uh, well, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, we've done it in world-class road cyclists, for example. You know, they have to uh, lean over the, uh, the, the bike frame, mm -hmm. and uh, there's no option. You take a downhill skier, or a road cyclist, they have to go into full flexion because of wind resistance. There's no option to compete in those sports otherwise. So it's a matter of when they are training, they train um, first to get out of pain. So they just avoid spine flexion for a while. Um, and then as we start to introduce flexion again, you only introduce flexion without load. And you never really need to go into flexion with load to be a road cyclist. Now, if you're downhill skier, you've got to take the pounding and the force, uh, force vectors coming up through the knees and the hips. So we, we, we might do that with some jumping and box jumps and those kinds of things. Right. But uh, anyway, that's philosophically how we restore that uh, capability. But a road cyclist, all they have is torsion to handle through a flex spine. So that's a little easier because, see, if you flex your spine and then you lock it, you can create resilience. So when you, when you look at, say, in Strongman, uh, picking up the Atlas stone, you flex over the stone 
and use your, your pec muscles to actually become your, your, your uh, third and fourth hands. So they, they hook into the stone. So number one, the safest thing you can do is keep a neutral spine. You can't argue with that if you're going under load. But the second best, if you must go into flexion, go into flexion, and if you're going to apply load, lock it. Don't move your back. But the worst thing is if you go into flexion, under load, and then pull out into a neutral spine once again, under load. That's really bad. So do you see how there's different degrees here and how you can tickle a dragon's tail if you know those relationships? So shifting gears now, what is your take on manipulation or mobilizations directed specifically towards the lumbar spine? <laughs> it depends, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> That's the theme of this uh, Well, talk. Well, it is. Right, yeah. You know, if you ask me a specific question about a specific uh, item, I'll give you the answer mm-hmm. if I know it. Right. But if we're talking about a principle applied to getting people better, I need a lot of details yep. about the characteristics of that person. Yep. And uh, that, that's why the answer is always, de- it depends until we have the person, show me the patient, put them in front of us, let's assess, and then we'll come up with an answer. Um, but, but back to manipulation, you know we, we've done a few studies on this and, and, and published it. Um, you know, on one hand, uh, sometimes on a disc, we will put instrumentation inside a, a cadaveric disc. So we'll put in uh, a fairly large bore cannula, uh, and we're piercing the, the layers, going through layer by layer through the collagen. And when we pull the cannula out, there's a core hole, and the nucleus will actually leak out of that core hole. Do you know how I seal the core again? I give it a little bit of a manipulation, and it realigns the collagen fibers and shuts off that that... Um, rent as we call it. So it, it seals the, 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 the disc. Now that might work in certain herniation patterns, a very focal kind of a herniation, mm-hmm. uh, as long as the fibers were delaminated and not torn um, in the disc. But if you have torn uh, fibers, the manipulation is only going to make things worse. Yeah. <laughs> so d- again, do you see how the, there's, there's two different situations where the answer to your question it, it, it could go either way. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, it, you might get 20 minutes of pain relief, yeah, we've measured that. Um, but if, if all the person is doing is a manipulation, I would avoid them as, as, as with as great a distance as I possibly could because they're not doing a damn thing about whatever the cause was and getting rid of it. And that's how you get bad backs better. Right. Yeah, like I... I would say that the manipulations or, or any of these therapeutic tools, they open up that therapeutic window for you then to attack what the actual cause of that problem is, right? Whether it be corrective exercise or what have you, um, but it provides you that opportunity or access into the nervous system to then make a change. And move well, that, that that's very interesting because the bulk of our work on the manipulation suggests the mechanism of action is more neural than it is uh, mechanical. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, I just gave you a very specific tissue disruption mechanical um, uh, hypothesis. So it can go either way for sure. Right. And you just spent some uh, time actually at Stanford um, having a interesting conversation with uh, Grey Cook. So I just wanted to know what your 
what your thoughts were or your take-home points were from that whole experience. Because uh, I know I, I heard a lot of great things, uh, a lot of chatter on Facebook, and just wanted to know what your key points or take-home points were from that whole experience. Yeah, well, um, I was exhausted after the day, and I, I know Gray was as well. It was well, I've done several debates over my career, but uh, that one uh, seemed to take a, a fair bit out of me. I, I prepared for about three months to... Uh, get to the position where I felt I was uh, conversant enough with uh, Gray's work. And one thing that uh, certainly uh, came out over and over again while I was preparing was the breadth of the man. The man is so much bigger than the FMS and the SFMA, but that's what people hear and they, you know they don't realize that he was working with athletes uh, you know a number of, he's a little bit younger than I am but <laughs> but still a number of years ago he wrote that book uh, Athletic Body and Balance um, so you know uh, it, it really is unfair to to peg him as just the uh, FMS man yep. he's so much more so the day before the event we uh, spent it together we uh, met with the uh, Stanford football team and and uh, just walked around campus had lunch together and it was just a wonderful time you know even though I'd read all of that um, uh, about him for, for three months uh, it was still wonderful and uh, you learn so much more about a person spending a bit of time with them than you ever do watching their DVD or going to one of their courses of course. and uh, so that was a, a wonderful day and, and I think we forged a friendship that uh, will, uh, will, will only grow so uh, that was um, a wonderful component of the experience for me um, but for the day itself, uh, there's a DVD that's coming out. Um, uh, Laurie Draper, who many of you, what, what's her company called? Movement Lectures. Movement Lectures, yeah. It's coming out on Movement Lectures in a, another couple of months, I understand. Mm -hmm. It's it's a huge editing process because it's eight hours of, of <laughs> us being on. Um, but um, I, I think people will see that and they'll realize that the whole day it was it turned out and and it could have gone very badly um to tell you the truth i i, I didn't really know what to expect myself and and frankly neither did gray or a lot of people but uh it turned out wonderfully and people saw this continuum um from from the fms assessments all the way through to what some people would call uh capacity for example um but we're both heavily invested in that full continuum. Uh, but it was much bigger than him or much bigger than me. It was, it was this, this whole understanding of, of movement all the way through its continuum that uh, I just wish we had a second day and he could have shown some more of his expertise mm -hmm. and I could have done a little bit more assessment. What, have, what would have just been uh, a beautiful capstone experience for the audience would be for us to take um, a patient. He do his, you know, he can do whatever he wanted with them and I would do whatever I wanted with them. And just to contrast and, and uh, uh, compare the approaches a bit. But uh, it, it might have turned out that we all just arrived in the same place anyway, which um, I, I would have predicted we would have been very close. Right. So that's that, that's the experience of the day. Awesome. And uh, it, it it wasn't a hell of a lot of fun doing it. It was very stressful actually. Yeah. 
and uh, I mean, uh, I, I think you've known me a lot of years, but you just see me on stage. Truth be known, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd rather be anywhere else than on the stage <laughs> in front of people. I'm, I'm normally a pretty quiet guy. <laughs> so uh, apart from the anxiety of uh, putting yourself out there in front of all of those people, um, it was, uh, it was a, a, a very, very uh, good growth experience, I think, for both of us. Well, Dr. McGill, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to have this chat with me today. Well, thank you. And um, uh, I didn't realize that uh, we first met when you were a first-year student. Yeah. And I, I remember you. You came to my uh, seminar, and you actually helped out there. So I, I remember, and I appreciate that. So I just want to thank you for your support over the last, has it been five years now? Yeah, about four years. Yeah. About four years. <laughs> And uh, I wish you uh, nothing but the very best for your uh, career. I know you're going to be a great doc. Thank you. For the listeners, to learn more about Dr. McGill, visit www.backfitpro.com. Um, his textbooks are also available for pur to purchase on his website. Stay tuned for more information about our next Movement Science podcast. Thanks for listening.